the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The views and opinions expressed in the program are not necessarily those of this radio station or its sponsors and should not be construed as legal, tax, or investment advice. You should always consult the appropriate advisor before making any financial decision. All rights reserved. Now, AM 1220 KNW presents... New Focus on Wealth with certified financial planner Chad Burton, drawing from his 20-year background in finance and investing to help you make sense of your money matters. New Focus on Wealth. Get a new focus on personal finance, wealth management, Wall Street, and the economy. Now your host for New Focus on Wealth, Chad Burton. Welcome to the show. I am your host, Chad Burton, certified financial planner. I know, I know it's been a little, little bit, a week off. Spring break with the kids. We had a good time, but now it's catch up time back in full force and try to get a couple of shows and podcasts out to you. And it's a good time because first quarter earnings reports really kind of start in full force today. We got a few banks reporting, including JP Morgan. Pretty high expectations in the energy sector and the financial sector. Those are the two areas of value and that growth to value rotation that have really taken off recently between trading revenue and uh, M&A activity and all of the other things going on in the world of finance, including banks soon to be allowed to uh, continue to raise their dividends because they were on hold for a while. That sector's been on fire. So we'll see what the banks say. According to Factset Earnings Insight, and during earnings seasons, I, I talk about these reports from Factset. You can Google Factset Earnings Insight. I think it's one of the best free resources out there on the web. Factset is really a company that is comparable to Bloomberg in terms of data and information. I think it's just better and easier to use too. Um, And so Factset puts these earnings insight reports out. And and check this out. They say for the first quarter of 2021, the estimated earnings growth rate for the S&P 500 is 24.5%. Now, Let's talk about that for a minute. Because when you hear somebody say, what is the estimated earnings growth rate? Some people automatically assume that, oh, that means the returns, my returns in my portfolio are expected to be 24.5% in the first quarter. That's not what it means. It means that if a company is looking at their, their earnings for the end of the first quarter of 2021, it's being compared to the end of the first quarter of the year before. That's what its estimated earnings growth rate changes. So it's 24.5%. And if we come in, if the S&P 500 as a total comes in at 24.5%, that will mark the highest year-over-year earnings growth rate reported since the third quarter of 2018. Now, what happened in the third quarter of 2018? When the Earnings were up 26.1%. We had a really good economy going and it was post the 2017 tax cut where not only was the economy buzzing along quite nicely, although I think back then the growth rate was slowing a little bit because we'd gone pretty far pretty fast. But 
in 2017, the same quarter, companies were paying higher taxes. And so 2018, that earnings comparable was pretty easy. Well, I, I, let's put this again in context. So 2017, you had the big tax cut. So in the first three quarters of 2018, we saw 25% growth for the first three quarters of 2018. And that's because the comparables, especially after taxes, when you're looking at your earnings, pretty easy to the previous year. But then we go into 2020. And in 2020, things were starting to slow down. We had a negative 15% earnings growth in the S&P 500. And then we were COVID full force. The lockdown was in full effect. So Q2 2020, earnings were down 30%. Now that was way better than expected because as we got into the, the second quarter, so by the end of June, when, when companies you know start reporting in July for the second quarter, COVID was in full effect and earnings expectations were supposed to be down negative 45%. But results came in better than expected, down 30%. And it was because of energy and hospitality and leisure and things like that. So look, guys, the, the next, this quarter and next quarter are going to look phenomenal because we're reporting against last year when earnings were on the massive decline because of a full-on worldwide lockdown. Unless you were in Texas and Arizona or Georgia or Florida. But other than that, it was a worldwide lockdown, right? All right, so look, it's, you have to see sometimes when, when you're going to hear these reports about 20% plus earnings growth. A lot of times when you see those numbers, when they're that good, it doesn't automatically equate to the returns in your portfolio for that year because everybody knew this was going to happen. And the market started recovering, was way up last year and is already, already way up this year to the point of, I wouldn't expect a heck of a lot more going forward except for certain areas of the economy that are still continuing to prove like, you know, financials and energy and materials and things like that, that will really benefit from catching up to technology because of the infrastructure spending that we have. Um, now, there's still certain technology that's going to do really well because you got a big push to make more semiconductors in this country. That's part of the fiscal package that's coming out. And it's also part of national security. So that's a big issue when it comes to semiconductors. All right, so is most of this priced in? That's going to be the question. The forward 12-month PE ratio, according to Facts and Earnings Insight, is 22.4. You're paying 22.4 for every dollar of earnings that, that the companies in the S&P 500 make. This PE ratio is above the five-year average of 17.8 and above the 10-year average of 15.9. Now, I will say that the makeup of the S&P 500 has changed quite a bit over the last 10 years. And 10 years ago, we were still recovering from that 2007 an eight massive decline. I'm sorry, 2008 and 2009 massive decline where PE ratios got really, really low. So the, the makeup of the S&P 500, the 500 largest companies in the world, there's a lot of tech now and tech has been trading for quite a long time at a, at a higher PE ratio than other sectors because of the revenue growth is there. So we're looking at a 20% plus increase in earnings this quarter and next for the S&P 500. We're expecting a 6.4% revenue growth, though. So you see what I mean? There's a lot of costs. And 
it's not equating directly to the revenue growth. You see what I mean? So there's some financial manipulation that's going on there. Um, there was a lot of cost cutting. So your revenue is only going to grow a certain amount, but you're trying to maintain double digit profit margins. So you're going to cut costs in certain places. So you need to realize that you got, you have to look at revenue growth in the long run as well. But profit margins are high. We have really high profit margins. Um, we have decent, you know, higher single digit revenue growth. And some of the sectors are obviously a lot higher than that. But the expectations for the S&P 500 for the next 12 months is 9.8%. So when FactSet kind of looked at all of the industry analysts out there in aggregate in terms of what do they expect for the price return of the S&P 500, 9.8% over the next 12 months. Now, the S&P 500 had a big pop um, and the total return with dividends is about 10.37% already. It's only four and a half months into the year. That's a full year's worth of return right there. And last year was really good. Now, the S&P 500, which has really kind of turned into a growth index because of Amazon and Microsoft and Apple and, and companies like that, you're seeing the value rotation in a couple of different areas. If you look at the S&P 500, which is really you're investing in about 50 to 60 companies because of the way it's created. But if you look at the equal weight S&P 500 index, that's a 14.5%. Over 4% better than the S&P 500 because of extra uh, allocation to value companies and to smaller companies. So coming back after the break, we're going to talk about where our what are some of the different indexes doing and have we seen a rotation from growth to value? I'll give you an update on that as well as international investing. If you want to get your email questions on the show, shoot me an email, chat at chadburton.com. You can find me at chadburton.com for help with investments and retirement planning. Let's talk a little bit more is the, so far the value rotation, which really kind of started at the end of, I think it was the end of, uh, February, March timeframe is still holding the S&P 500 total return for the year after this recent, kind of recovery because it was, gosh, I think right before I left for spring break, it was down about, it was down. It was, the return was around 4% because it had a little bit of a pullback. And now S&P 500 uh, is up about 10.37% for the year. And you can see the value rotation a couple different ways. Like I mentioned, if you look at an equal weight S&P 500 ETF or index, that's up about 4% better. If you look at a couple of different uh, value ETFs. One way to look at it is, you know, you look at uh, Vanguard Mega Cap Value ETF, for example. It's the real big, large value-oriented companies is up 12% for the year, whereas Vanguard Growth ETF is up 7.58% for the year. So growth part of the S&P 500 or any large cap index, it has underperformed value by close to half in some cases. And if you look at some of the ETFs that are a little bit more actively managed, iShares, MSCI, USA Value Factor ETF, which they, these ETFs kind of reconstitute their holdings every six months on specific dates. It's up almost 21% for the year, whereas the iShares, MSCI, USA Momentum Factor ETF, which weights more in the companies that have showing price appreciation is up 6% for the year. So that means a lot of the companies that did really well last year, because that, that ETF crushed it last year, um, have definitely underperformed this year. Because everybody piled into that COVID play. Now everybody's looking at adding to 
materials, energy, financials, certain industrials that should benefit from fiscal stimulus. Now, the the small cap index, the Russell 2000, up 13.3% for the year. So small caps have have outperformed large caps. Small cap 600 value ETF, iShares, S&P 500 small cap value ETF, up 25.3%. iShares small cap growth ETF still outperformed the S&P 500, but almost half the return of the value side of small cap, up 13.82%. So if you would have listened at all to me of what I was saying, especially after the big pullback that we had in February and March, I was telling you that small cap and, and mid cap, especially on the small cap value side, have not only had they already underperformed over the last 10 years, but they pulled back way too hard. And that's when a, where a big amount of these returns have been. And that, I hope you didn't miss it because kind of come late to the party if you did, but you still want that exposure. Most people have just been large cap growth last five years. They're looking at their 401k, looking at the S&P 500, any large cap growth fund. That's where they're shoving all their money. Where we're finally seeing the rotation that I've talked about for 20 plus years on radio, where you get certain portions of the economy that perform really, really well over three to five years, and then they don't. Then they take a breather for two or three years. And other asset classes come into play. You can look at the Callan Periodic Table of Investments to see that type of a color chart on how that works. And that's C-A-L-L-A-N. Just Google that. It's really cool to look at that asset class rotation. All right. Inflation. I swear that every other talk on anything financial has to do with inflation. And here's what's going to happen. Inflation is going to tick a lot of people off. Because I can sit here and tell you what economists are looking at. That is... Inflation, X, food, and energy is pretty much under control. It's not really there. And then you're listening to this as you left the grocery store and you just loaded all your stuff in the back of your car. And you're like, what in the heck are you talking about? You moron. And then you go to the gas station and you fill up your car on the way home. And you're like, what the hell are you talking about, moron? (laughs) It's like, there's massive amounts of inflation. Or if you're building a home and your contractor just told you that, you know what? I know I bid this out last year, but... Lumber costs are up like 35%. Steel costs up to 20%. So yeah, this is going to cost you a lot more. And so when economies are looking at core inflation, it's X food and energy. Uh, they're, they'll say, well, we're not seeing signs of anything sticking. We're also comparing to a period of deflation last year and a lot of those same things. Like remember how energy costs went way down? You remember that week when energy, when oil costs, oil prices went negative because there was all of a sudden this massive supply because of what Russia was doing. And there was a big, huge drop in demand because of the lockdown and people were paying for storage. And so there was that weird week of energy prices and a lot of smart investors piled into that to into energy at that point saying, no, the reason why they're willing to pay for oil storage right now is because they know this isn't going to last forever. And here we are, gas prices back up and people are itching to get in an airplane and take off. You can tell that because we redid our Costa Rica trip for spring break that was canceled last year as a result of COVID and all four flights were full. The main flight there and the connecting flight, full of people. Um, And of course, you have to COVID test to get back in the country too, by the way. So you got to plan for that. Um, and as a side note, you can either test in the areas that you go or you can bring the test with you and 
do the test in front of a doctor on Zoom, which is how we did it. Uh, okay, so the food and energy price is way up. The, the other crazy inflation is the cost of building. Lumber price is up 35%. Um, particle board and certain things like that that have some adhesive in it really have gone up. Steel up double digits and demand is supposed to go way up. Millennials are buying homes. So there's no shortage of people that are willing to buy a home at these rates at this point, even with construction costs and, and the price is going up. I was looking at an article on a, a site called Construction Drive and they were talking about, he said, the, the, the first part of the article said, last year, Mike Taylor was paying around $750 per short ton for the rebar he uses in his concrete pours. Now that price has spiked to closer to 900 bucks, a 20% increase in a little over a month. That can mean an extra $200,000 on the typical concrete job that they do, according to the CEO. And uh, the company that they're referring to is a company called Current Builders, general contractor that focuses on commercial and multifamily structures where there's a lot of concrete. If you want to see something interesting, there's a, a Cheddar Explains series of videos talked about the massive use of concrete and how it's kind of destroying our environment. So a lot of the innovation that's going to occur is in the world of concrete so that's permeable so that if you do concrete foundation, uh, the water can still seep through and, and go into the ground. So we've had so much massive increase in flooding and a big increase in heat because you put a ton of concrete in a hot area like Vegas, it's going to increase the heat of that area. All right, moving on. So Massive increase in construction costs. So what has that done uh, to, it, it, it's actually helped existing office retail or existing office real estate prices in, in a lot of areas, not places like New York where you're hearing all these stories of a decrease in rent, but certain areas like the Northwest, which I'll tell you about how commercial properties, all of a sudden the cost increased a ton because of building costs of doing something new. Say hello to a pass that gives you endless travel for $2,500 per month with no nightly rates, taxes, or fees. You might call it the suitcase is always packed pass or the wait. I get to choose from 100,000 trips pass. The will it be the beach, city, mountains, or all three pass. Or you could just call it what we call it, the Inspirado Pass. Endless travel for $2,500 per month with no nightly rates, taxes, or fees. Learn more at inspiradopass.com. All right, so real quickly, let me finish up my conversation on real estate, because you're hearing a whole bunch of interesting things. Like in New York, especially, you're, you're hearing about big price reductions in apartments that have... Um, there's some big hedge fund manager that sold an apartment. Um, it was like a 75% price, price decrease on what it used to be up for sale for. Um, you're hearing a lot about reduced rates in retail space where as stores are reopening, they're renegotiating leases and it's a much lower rate. And you got to be aware of that. Because first of all, going into this, if you look at REITs, Real Estate Investment Trust, which are just a company that deals in real estate. They trade just like Apple, Microsoft, Cisco, whatever. The sector is just real estate. Uh, anything office related, you had to say, okay, how much of their rent are they still collecting? If they own office retail, how much rent are they still collecting? Now, a lot of companies did the PPP loans, which allowed them to continue to pay rents. And um, so that helped a lot. But there's certain retail spaces that aren't going to come back. You know, like I, I looked at the Portland airport, for example, and there's retailers there that I've always walked past them on my flight back to the Bay Area. And I would say, 
how do these stay open? You, you walk by these retail locations, there's hardly anybody in there. And you're like, this has got to cost a ton of money. How do these places stay open? Is it online business that we're not seeing? I don't get it. And there's, there's certain retailers that just, you know, shut their doors forever. Lots of restaurants that shut their doors forever. And so those sp- spaces have to be refilled. And some of those are being refilled at a lower rent, plain and simple. And that's especially in the more densely populated areas. But if you go to places like Vancouver, Washington, which is right across the river from Portland, Oregon, where that's where, if you look at the downtown Vancouver, Washington waterfront, there's a billion dollar or so investment in it. It is so beautiful just in this little pocket of area. And, and all the way out to east of that, to say Camas and North and Salmon Creek area, a lot of demand, a lot of building going on. But what happened is all of a sudden with all of this happening and the big increases in building materials between steel and concrete, which uses a ton of steel, right, for the rebar, the story that I just mentioned, and then a huge increase in lumber. And then you had this Texas freeze that screwed up a lot of that. Um, In fact, there's a bunch of adhesive issues that go into construction that is hard to get right now. What was happening is a lot of these projects that were about to begin prior to COVID stopped because of COVID. And then by the time they said, okay, we're going to get going again now that we can bring our workers back and start building again, the cost of all these goods went way up. And so there was a ton of new projects apparently that were halted because people hadn't applied for a large enough loan in order to complete these building projects. And stuff was already hard to get penciled out because the cost of property and and buildings and things like that had already skyrocketed so much. By the time you do this increase in building costs, you're like, this apartment isn't going to be a good deal anymore. This commercial building isn't going to be a good deal for me anymore. The the cap rates are too low. So a lot of new construction deals and rehabs kind of went on hold, which made existing structures in office space more valuable, like instantly. And people are buying these things up left and right. Because there's so much cash out there looking for a spot for income because people are like, I don't like the bond market. The bond market's down 3.5% or so for the year. And rates could continue to increase. So I'm going to put my money elsewhere and hard assets right now. Why hard assets? Because hard assets do well in times of inflation typically. Um, So it's just kind of been interesting to see. Now, the other thing that I'll mention is, as you know, that you've heard me talk about before, We have an office building in Vancouver, Washington. Again, right across the river from Portland, Oregon. And when COVID hit, uh, we only had one person working out of the office building. Um, He had a young kid at home and one on the way. So, okay, you you stay there. We'll all go home and work. And then he went on paternity leave for the new baby. And five days later, a homeless person that was camping out lit the building on fire. And I've already mentioned some of the stuff that I'm dealing with insurance-wise. But now, as the city, as we're still dealing with this stuff because the city of Vancouver is so slow right now because they're still working from home and, and you know, a system that was built on... I don't know what it was built on. You walk in there and there's these giant white boxes with green 
you know, computer screens. It's that old. And then when you hear him print something, it's like, it's just, it's such a nightmare. And so the, the permitting process is just getting ridiculous. And then all of a sudden the structural engineer comes in and says, oh, you need to do all of these structural engineering improvements on this building since you redid it. I redid the building in 2007. It's just this old craftsman style home that, you know, we have, what, eight different offices inside of it. And now they're trying to say, okay, you need fifty dollars to $100,000 of structural improvements and my policy is only covering twenty five grand of that. So we're just kind of fighting with the city. They're like, well, each office space will have two to three people in it and all these file cabinets. So you need all of this structural engineering. And like, we're paperless. We don't have file cabinets. So uh, just, you know, you, you think you know everything about finance after 26 years in the business, but um, not too happy with my insurance agent right now to say the least because the... Rebuilding costs is a little bit under, I would say. And then now the structural improvements on a commercial building, like this, the, the policy should have covered more for that. And so I'm kind of dealing with that right now. All right, moving on, because what I wanted to get into in this show is what the heck is happening with your dividends and interest? What the heck is happening with your dividends and interest? You should be looking at this because... This is the time of year where you're all doing your tax returns and you get a 1099. And that shows clearly what your dividends and interest are as well as your realized gains and losses from your buys and sells. So what is happening? Why am I talking about this? First of all, stocks pay dividends, bonds pay interest. Now, when you own a mutual fund, um, both dividends and interest are typically called just dividends in a mutual fund, but mutual funds also annually pay capital gains distributions in the form of a dividend. And I want to make sure that if you guys are trying to build wealth, that when you've bought that stock, you've bought that ETF, that you are checking the box to reinvest your dividends. Dividends are very important. The S&P 500, although it's a very low dividend yield because the prices are way up, yields 1.35%. That's almost as much as a 10-year treasury. If you look at uh, energy ETF XLE, yields 4%. The Russell 2000 small cap companies even yield 0.92%, which is way more than you get in a bank account, right? Um, And again, but you're dealing with volatility and price fluctuations here. EFA, which is international developed, yields 2%. XLK, which is a ETF that invests in tech, is 0.78% yield. XLE, Oh, I already mentioned that one. XLF, the financial area, 1.68%. XLRE, an ETF that invests in real estate, is yielding 3.28%. So all of these dividends are being paid. What's happening with those? If you don't have them automatically reinvested, then it's just going to go to cash and you got to remember to trade. Your money could just be sitting there idle. Where in all of these brokerage accounts, especially at Schwab, for example, which is probably my favorite place to set up accounts. It used to be TD Ameritrade. TD Ameritrade has been purchased by Schwab. So no point in setting up new accounts at TD. So you, you can, what happens is when you buy an ETF or a stock, you can have the dividends reinvested. And if the dividends are small and not high enough to buy a full share, it'll buy you fractional shares. It'll buy you fractional shares. So you'll watch your shares, the number of shares, even in a declining market, these things will still pay dividends. In a declining market, it's like buying low, right? It's, taking the dividends and reinvesting to buy more shares. And it's, a, it's one of the most important ways to build wealth is reinvesting those dividends. Okay? 
So when you buy or when you buy a stock or an ETF, you can click the button to have those dividends reinvested. So what you want to do, if you're still building wealth, you're well over five years away from retirement and you never did that, maybe you look through your portfolio and turn that on. If you're not good at looking at your account, seeing all the cash that's accumulated from all those dividends, then you might need to call your Schwab Fidelity or whatever and say, hey, can you turn on dividend reinvestment for my holdings so that they buy fractional shares? And even new investors, you can do this because if, if you're a new investor and you say you want to buy, first of all, I don't like you buying individual stocks until you have over 250 grand in index funds. But if you want to buy a bunch of different companies, but you don't have the money to buy a bunch of them, young people can buy fractional shares at places like Schwab or I think even Robinhood now. So what we're going to talk about next is why you change that dough when you get to retirement. I keep running into portfolios of people that are retired drawing on their portfolio that forgot to turn off dividend reinvestments. And that's a little bit silly. So once you get closer to retirement, you may need to turn off your dividend reinvestments and do the opposite of what I just said. Because if you're pulling money out of your portfolio, why would you be reinvesting your dividends? You just need to take those dividends. You can even have it so your dividends and interest in your taxable accounts are automatically sent to your checking account. They can sweep out. Talking about dividends and interests as you're building wealth, really important to make sure those are reinvested. If you, even if you look at your statements on your 401k, this will tend to happen automatically in your 401k. So you don't typically have to worry about this in your 401k, especially if you have the automatic rebalancer turned on where every six to 12 months, your portfolio, your pie chart rebalances to get to where it was supposed to be. So what it would have done in the end of 2020 or the beginning of 2021, it would have peeled off some of the gains in large cap growth and redeployed it into the other asset classes that you might have chosen. And then your dividends are reinvested automatically. You can see that if you turn more than just look at the first page of your 401k, you can look back in the transactions and see those dividends and interest and see them buy more shares. So very important to building wealth. When you start to trade on your own outside of your 401k and you start to buy your own stocks and ETFs, exchange traded funds, it's the new, basically the new style of mutual fund. Um, when you buy those, when you trade those, you have to check a box to reinvest those dividends or not. And if you haven't, you should probably call and make sure those dividends are being reinvested unless you're about five years from retirement. Then it could change. About five years from retirement, you might look at your portfolio and say, ooh, I'm a little bit heavy in equities. If I'm going to retire in you know, five years, what my favorite portfolio is, is you have three years worth of your portfolio draws, not your expenses. That's too much. But your portfolio draws, which I'll explain in a minute, you need three years worth of that in safe places. So you have to have a detailed cash flow report. And if you're too heavy in equities, you need three years worth of portfolio draws in safe places. And really, you don't need to, in most cases, go more than 65% to 70% in stocks and the rest in bonds. If you're taking more risk than that, it means you're either very wealthy and you don't care about fluctuations or you're just taking too much risk. Um, so when you look at that, you say, okay, I'm, I'm five years from retirement, but I'm like 90 to 100% in stocks. Maybe you stop some of the dividend reinvestments and you start to take that cash on a quarterly basis when they come in and you use it to either accumulate more cash or start to buy bonds if they're more attractive at that point in time. 
right now, you can look in your 401k and say, you know what, I'll use the stable value fund if you have one in your 401k. A lot of those stable value funds are paying just as much as bond funds and they don't have the price decline when interest rates go up typically. So check out stable value funds in your 401k. When, when you go into retirement too, you're, you're starting to draw on your portfolio. When you go into retirement and you need income, if you look at your taxable accounts, your non-retirement accounts, you're going to pay taxes on those dividends and interest whether or not you take them. So if you need to pull money out on a monthly basis and you set up what's called a systematic withdrawal, that means you start pulling money out of your portfolio on a monthly basis. There is, it's silly to reinvest your dividends at that point. You might as well have your dividends go to cash. In fact, you can have, you can say, let's say you get an individual account or a joint account with your spouse or a trust account with yourself or your spouse. You can actually have the brokerage firm just send all of the dividends and interest to your checking account as they're paid. That way you have a constant source of income. It's that passive income that I love so much. I, I, I mean, the, the idea that you could say, I'm going to have passive income, I'll have my social security, I'll have my real estate, net income from my rental properties. I'll have my dividends for my stocks, my interest for my bonds. I would like to build enough wealth so that 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 passive income is more than enough and I don't have to sell anything to make ends meet. And whatever's left over when I die, I'll go to charity or my kids. Right? That That's the passive income, the income form of getting to retirement. Most people can't save that much though. So most people, when they get to retirement, will have to draw a certain amount out of their portfolio. Because when I got into the business 26 years ago, a balanced portfolio was yielding at least 4 4.5%. Because bonds were paying 6%. Dividends were up in the 3% range on the S&P 500. Now, dividend increases haven't been as important and the prices are up. So... And bonds are yielding, you know, one and a half to three and a half percent, depending on conservative to aggressive. So the the income, even though the, the the increase in value is better, the income isn't as much. So most people can't just live off of the income. You're gonna you're gonna have to sell a certain amount each year when the market is positive. You have to have a detailed cash flow. You have to be able to see this. You have to see a report that clearly shows all of your inflows from Social Security your investment income from dividends and interest, your real estate income if you have real estate. Then you have to have another column that shows all of your expenses, not only your household expenses, but the random expenses, the vacations, the taxes, the Medicare costs, the co-pays of insurance, all the things that you're probably not thinking about. So after you have all of your inflows and all of your expenses, the result shows you, okay, if there's a negative number there, that shows you exactly how much you're going to pull out of your portfolio each year. That's your portfolio drop. Once you see that number, that's when you start to design a tax-efficient income plan. How am I going to satisfy that portfolio draw? Tax-wise, am I going to take it from my taxable accounts, my bank accounts, or my IRAs and 401ks? And that's where you get into very detailed tax planning in retirement, whether or not you're going to draw from your IRAs and spend it or draw from your taxable accounts, and then convert your IRAs to a Roth. You have to see all of this on a very detailed cash flow report. We have to do these detailed cash flow reports in retirement so that we can first create a tax-efficient income plan because you have different types of accounts. After we know which accounts you're drawing from on an annual basis, that's when we can then go back and design your asset allocation. 
because you're going to draw a certain amount from your IRAs, a certain amount from your taxable accounts. So you need a certain amount of cash in your IRA, a certain amount of cash in your taxable accounts. And then you have to do tax-efficient asset allocation planning where your taxable accounts are going to own in retirement, large cap US, mid cap US, some REITs and tax-free bonds and the rest of the stuff, the international, the small cap. That'll probably, and corporate bonds, that'll be in your IRAs. So there's this process to retirement planning. You've got to get that process done in detail. If you need help with that, just go to chadburton.com. That's chadburton.com. Thanks for listening. Please tell a friend about the show. You can find all of the links to Facebook, Twitter, iTunes at chadburton.com. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.